Good morning. Good morning. I missed you all. We missed you. Yeah. I am back today, and I'll tell you a little about what we've been doing, and then I'm going to be gone the next three weekends in a row. And then I'll be back for a while. So, and uh, last weekend, Christy and I were in Washington D.C., and we didn't have anything to do on Friday, so we got up and we decided to walk over to the Capitol. And so we walked up to the Capitol, and uh, it was pretty well security guarded and prevented us from getting in. You, they won't let you in, even though you're a U.S. citizen. You can't go in your Capitol these days. And uh, so we couldn't go in. And so we walked over to see our congressman, uh, Zach Womp. And so we went over to Womp's office, and uh, his secretary met us and was being very cordial and polite. And in about five minutes, just really quickly after getting there, Zach Womp walked in and introduced himself and asked if we wanted to go to Congress. And we said, well, sure. And so he took us down through the tunnels and passed security. And he just waved at him and said, there with me. And so we didn't have to go through security and walked us right through and up to the gallery and put us in the gallery for Congress. And we, we were surprised to look and find that suddenly we're watching the last 30 minutes of the debate for the $700 billion bailout package. And, and, the, uh, and we sat there as they voted to pass the, the legislation. So it was like, you couldn't even have planned something like that because two weeks ahead of time, planning a vacation, nobody knew they were going to be doing the bill. So it was really kind of fascinating. And as we sat there watching, we, we wondered if we were watching part of, uh, part of history in the making, part of the preparation for, for the Lord's coming. And I, and I wrote about that in my blog uh, last night that went up on our website last night. And I think that we were. I think this was one of, the, one of the major pieces that needed to transpire to move us to a direction where government controls the economy. And we know that that's going to happen before Christ comes again. And it was quite an interesting thing. And you remember those final movements will be rapid ones. And this bill went through like that. It was within two hours of passing the Congress. It was up at the president's desk and was being signed into law. But anyway, let's go ahead and, and begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. And we pray that your uh, Holy Spirit will be with us and lighten our minds, that we can see more clearly what you have done to, to save and redeem us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number four in our quarterly, Atonement and the Cross of Christ. The lesson title today is Atonement and the Divine Initiative. Somebody read the memory text for us in our lesson this week. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Now, according to this text, in this particular text, what is the mystery of his will? To bring all things into unity, all things into oneness, to reconcile all things. Now, the question is, why was this a mystery? How come this was uh, something that people didn't know? Where did this mystery come from? Do you think before Lucifer rebelled, there was mystery in heaven about God's love for his creatures? Before Lucifer rebelled, was there mystery? Did the intelligent beings in heaven not know God wanted to be at union, at one, in harmony with his creatures? Was there some mystery or mystique or confusion about God's desire for closeness and unity with his intelligent beings prior to Lucifer's rebellion? No. Now, this is important to recognize. Is there a mystery because God is somehow being mysterious? Is there a mystery because God obfuscates the truth and, and or works to cause confusion? No. no. This is very important because as I've studied this lesson, there are implications and some people actually teach and I've listened to other people talk about this text and they talk about, you know, God is the source of the mystery. Is God the source of the mystery? No. And they will say it in this way because there is, there is a truth they take and the truth is God is infinite. Because God is infinite, there's always more about God we can learn. 
there's always uh, things and attributes about God that are beyond our current comprehension. And that's true, isn't it? Yes. Because that's true, some people then take, well, therefore, God's mysterious. But I don't think that the mystery of unity, oneness, love, reconciliation, harmony with his creatures was ever a mystery about God's character. I think that's always been out in the open. I don't think God uh, works to obfuscate that. In fact, Jesus said in, in John 18, uh, when he was on trial before the Sanhedrin, remember, he, uh, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And this is what he said when they, when they talked to him. He said, I have always spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. I mean, is this a principle? Is this only for Jesus? Or is this how the Father works? Does the Father work in openness? Does the Father work where, where he allows himself to be investigated and seen for who he is by his intelligent creatures? Or does the Father work in secret? They're together. They're the same. Okay. So who is the Father of lies? Satan. And then who is the author of confusion? So when you read about the mystery, these mysteries of God in the Bible, are, are, you, are you recognizing that there's mystery because our minds have been darkened about God by uh, Satan? Do you recognize that? Or, or is it like, well, God's really hard to understand, and God's really hard to find, and God really is, is a difficult being. And, I mean, do we put this, this mystery on God, or do we put it on the fact that we have been lied to? Does it make a difference? Yeah. Don't you think some of the mystery, though, is that they had never seen death and they didn't understand what that actually meant? And that was the mystery of that secret plan or that mysterious plan? Well, there, there's multiple mysteries in the Bible, and that's why I asked the mystery of this particular text was oneness, bringing all things to, at one in Christ. And so I just didn't think that, that God's desire to have unity, oneness, love, harmony with his creatures was really something that was a mystery until Lucifer rebelled. It seems to me that was where the, the mystery arose, wouldn't it be? That particular aspect of God. Now, I think you're right that, that there was probably confusion about um, what is it death it actually is, having never seen death. What is that? I think there could have been mysteries about a lot of those questions as well. And what did that mean that Christ would die? And, and him sharing that whole uh, killing the lamb and all that stuff. They, I don't think they understood all that. And I think there's a lot of people who don't understand that today. <laughs> and maybe we're going to explore that as we go through the lesson today. So I just wanted to start the class with saying, look, if there's a mystery about God and his character, it's not because God is being mysterious. It's because Satan has lied about God, and those lies have infected how we see and think about him. That's where the, the mystery about God seems to be coming from. Somebody read the last paragraph there in Sabbath's lesson. God, foreseeing that horrible possibility of disobedience, acted accordingly. Thus, the plan of salvation was conceived in the divine mind long before humans were created, and before evil and evil and sin actually appeared. A plan that centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, do you think that God saw just the possibility of sin, as the paragraph suggests, or did God see the fact that sin would actually arise? Does God know what will happen or only what might happen? Yeah, the, the paragraph seems to suggest you saw the possibility. Isn't that what it says? I, I question the, a plan that centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ 
which in a way, but it's really the truth about God, wasn't it? The whole plan was to reveal the truth about God. That's the problem. Uh, that's part of the problem. We, we should explore, is there more to that problem once Adam fell into sin? Did the nature and character of man get changed? Yes. Did the nature and character of man need to be restored? Yes. Is the nature and character of man restored only by revealing truth? Or did Christ actually do battle in our behalf in his own life journey, his walk here as, as the human God-man, to achieve victory over forces of evil in our behalf? Was there a restorative process in what he did? Is that more than revealing truth? There's certainly the revelation of truth is, is essential. There's no question about that. Let, let's see if we can't ponder that idea as we go through the lesson. What does it say about God that he chose to create intelligent, free beings even though he knew sin would, would, would occur? Not knew that it could possibly occur, but that it would occur. Yes. And I'm thinking that maybe that's, that is a mystery. A mystery, you know, the love of God is a mystery. The, sin is a mystery, you know, that's... Sin, the origin of sin is a mystery. Right. Yeah. the love of God, you know, how can he know him? I think that's love. Knowing, you know, we're going to still love us, still give us a chance to... You're absolutely right. It is, it, to me, it speaks powerfully of God's love. What kind of being would he be if he didn't create with that knowledge? Would he not be exactly what Satan says he is? He manipulates, he uses his power, he uses his abilities, he uses his knowledge for his own ends to protect himself. But the fact that he knew what was going to happen and he created anyway shows that he was not willing to act in self-interest, but was willing to put himself in harm's way because of love. It also shows how much he values freedom. Well, that's part of it, because can love exist in an atmosphere without freedom? No, you're exactly right. And that's, that's huge in our society today when the question comes up uh, because what's going to ultimately be the beast's power and what's it going to do in the end? It's going to take away freedoms. freedoms. Okay? It's going to take away freedoms. And, there's gonna, and it's going to couch it in such a way that it's going to have on the surface the appearance of being good. Now, how could that happen? How about if we were going to take away freedom to protect innocent life? Well, we would want to do that, wouldn't we? Well, that's the abortionist, or the anti-abortionist. Well, isn't that a major thrust in going on in, in our country today? Well, tell me, who is the only truly innocent life ever on this planet? Was there anybody more innocent than Jesus? No. And when he was on the cross and he and his father had the choice restrict liberties of his creatures to protect innocent life or sacrifice innocent life in order to maintain freedom of his creatures which choice did he make? think that through God had the choice and he would rather sacrifice his innocent life than take away our freedom is that not true? anybody disagree with that? Because love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. And as Christians, our job, as it says in Ephesians chapter 4, is to present the truth in love, leaving people free. We convert. We don't coerce. And what's going to happen? There's going to be a subtle distortion where we Christians are going to rise up, take control of government, pass laws to coerce, thinking we're doing God's work. 
I don't know if that will be the specific issue or not, but it's, it's an area where we could certainly think it through and see a difficulty there. Sunday's lesson. Somebody read for us the first two paragraphs. God was not obliged to save the human race. It was not something that he was forced to do. It is difficult to imagine the Godhead saying, had we done this or that, Adam and Eve would not have fallen into sin. Therefore, now we should do something to save them from their predicament. Instead, humans brought upon themselves the condition in which they found themselves after the fall. God made man, ma- mankind upright, but men have gone in search of other schemes. It says God was not obliged to save the human race. What do you all think about that? In a way, he was because of his love and his, and his um, desire to uh, save man. She says, in a way, he was because he loved and wanted to save man. What do you all think? Was God obliged to, to save mankind? I see some heads, yes. I see some heads, no. Yes. Who he is. Obliged means forced to, kind of, in my mind. He wasn't forced. <coughs> forced to by some external force. But how about some internal force? How, was he forced by some internal force? See, does love compel to action? Was God, let me put it this way, was God obliged to be God? (laughs) I don't think he could be any different. Wasn't he? Yes, and is God love? Then was God obliged to be loving? You win. Pardon? You win. Okay. Does does love compel one to reach out and save? Yes. Yes. But it's not a grievous thing. No, it's not. We're going to get it. Absolutely, it's not a grievous thing. Um, does a parent does a parent have an obligation to their child? Yes. Yes. What is the obligation that a parent has to a child? Love them. Love them. Take care of them. Does is God our parent? Yes. Our heavenly Father. Does He have an obligation to us? What is that obligation? He put that obligation on Himself. <laughs> Does a parent put the obligation on themselves when they choose to have children? Yes. Okay, so um, one, more, one more point, and I'll get to you, okay. It says, does a parent have the obligation only to their obedient children or to their disobedient children as well? <laughs> well, then is, is God obligated by his own choice in creating us? Are you uncomfortable with that thought? Yes, in the back. We use uh, in the sense of you owe something. Oh, you know, uh, I, didn't, I didn't understand. Oh, okay. All right. So I think uh, in this statement here, it's saying that God didn't, he didn't owe it to us. Um, in the sense of, um, if you use obligation in the sense of something compelling him to do it, yes. But I, I think it's important to understand that the sense in which the author is using the word in this case, acknowledge that as well. Yeah, I think, I think that God was not indebted to us. But that doesn't mean there wasn't an obligation there. If you use obligation in the sense of something compelling, that's different. Um, was, was God obligated to let us suffer the penalty of sin? Did you hear that question? No. Was God obligated to let us suffer the penalty of sin? He was? No. 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 No, I, I think I like that question. I think it actually shows really the question goes back to God's character. 
And it revealed that when, when we fell into sin, God's true to himself. God is a God of love, and he took the divine initiative to heal and save and, and redeem. In the Teacher's Quarterly, page 43, it says, God created perfect creatures, and they chose to create chaos. In response, God chose to clean up the mess humans made. Discuss the scenarios God could have chosen instead of offering redemption. After examine these, examining these other potential outcomes, how do we understand God's character better? Suppose he had decided to leave us to our fate without the option of salvation. Thoughts about these questions from the teacher's quarterly? If he had left us to our fate, Satan would have been right about it. Mm. All speculation would uh, reflect his character. So you could speculate on anything, but only his character would, would... Well, then let's look at the first part of it. It says God chose to clean up the mess humans made. Was it necessary after we found this in for God to, to clean up the mess? If, if the mess was going to get cleaned up? Yeah. yeah. Um, was the mess made only by humans? No. No, it's important. It recognized that part of it as well. Um, was the plan um, designed, I don't think this is true, it may sound like a weird question. Um, was the mess that was transpiring and needed to be cleaned up a, a mess that was occurring in God's heart and mind? No. No. That sounds like a weird question, doesn't it? But do you ever hear that once man fell into sin, God was angry and wrathful? And Christ needed to appease his wrath. And that's the mess that needs to be cleaned up. You've never heard that? Oh, yeah. They've been arguing about it for... So you understand the mess that needed to be cleaned up was not in God, was it? Where's the mess? Whose hearts and minds? Our hearts and minds are where the mess is that needs to be cleaned up. Yeah. So what do you think would have happened... If God did not intervene to save mankind, what, what would have happened to Adam and Eve if God would have chosen not to do that? How? How do you think they would have died? Would, would God have, if he didn't intervene, would he have then had to execute them? No, they would kill themselves, one way or the other. Well, Separated, they would have died. Separated from the source of life, they would have died. I like that, yes. So once this mess occurred, then what was needed in order to clean it up? A remedy and a cure. Oh, I like that. A remedy and a cure. Teachers Quarterly 43 says, would you die for a power-hungry dictator? Would you die for a power-hungry dictator, terrorist, drug dealer, or prostitute? Would you give your life to die for them? What does your answer tell you about the character of God? You might have been a kid. Nice point. Did you hear what she said? Yeah, which was actually the next question here. What if that person was your child? Not only if that person was your child, but in giving your life and dying for them, you not just simply save them from an earthly death, but your death transformed their character to be like Christ and save them eternally. If your death did that, would you give your life for, for your child who was a drug dealer terrorist? You see, when Christ gave his life, it was not simply a legal payment to get us off some execution penalty that we were going to have to stand for. His death was designed to heal and restore and transform us back into godliness. And we need to explore through this talk today. How is it that Christ's life, death, resurrection achieved that remedy? Because all too often we leave it with simply, well, we were, you know, we're in trouble. We broke the rule. The rule is death must be imposed. We have to execute in order to be just and punish for sin. Christ came, took that penalty. He was executed, executed in our stead. 
If we accept the payment, we don't have to now be executed. That's how it's often looked at. You see, that, that theory does nothing to actually transform our hearts and minds. It has no healing power to it. It has... You're right, he wasn't executed. But do you know that in the book 27 Fundamental Beliefs on page 111, it says that God executed his son? It's a commentary. It's not the voted position of the church. But the, the person who comments there on page 111 says that God, in order to be just, must execute justice upon sin and thus the sinner. In this execution, the Son of God took, man, took man's place according to God's will. So God executes justice upon sin and sinner, and in the execution, the Son of God took man's place. So God is executing his son. Do you all believe that to be true? No. It's not true. It's a lie. And we need to recognize that. God did not execute his son. We ought to explore then why did the son die? Somebody read the memory text out of Monday's lesson for us. Before you go on, can I ask another question? Then you said, you also asked what, what else could have happened? What, what, uh, what was the other thing that God could have done? Um, one of the questions that was asked me this week was, uh, was God obligated to send them out of the garden once they had sinned? Put guards at the gate. And thoughts about that? Was God obligated to send them out of the garden? Is there's a reason given why he did? So they so live in the live it forever. It's <clears throat> so somehow it's. What does that tell you guys? What's the implication there? The tree of life somehow provides physiological health. It's like a, new, a really, really good nutritional supplement. There, if we could have a little bit of that. We'd be really healthy. Okay. Somehow, it's, and I think that's, that's not unreasonable. It's not magic. God has made us physiologic beings, and he can certainly create some type of a, of a nutritional uh, fruit or food that provides perfect ongoing health for our physical bodies, and our physical bodies wouldn't decay. I don't think that's unreasonable that he could do that. But then why didn't he just take the tree out and leave the garden being made? Wasn't it also um, kind of a bigger picture to it, like a picture of... Not just being separated from the tree of life, but the bigger picture of symbolizing that we're separated from God. And, and that separation from God will mean that we won't have eternal life. You know, there's going to be a limit to all this. I think that's true as well. You know, the Bible doesn't give a lot of direct discussion about the Garden of Eden. Okay? Other Bible commentators have speculated uh, and written about um, what happened. And it's written in some places that the Garden of Eden stayed on the, on the earth until the flood. And uh, the angels stayed there, and the whole antediluvian race were free to go up to the angels at the garden, at the, gu- at the gates, supposedly, and uh, could see for themselves the evidence of where mankind came from. And it was at the flood that, the, that, the e- that Eden was taken off the earth, and that Eden will be <clears throat> restored. Now, interestingly enough, the same people who, who comment on this suggest that when, when all is made new, that Adam will walk into the garden and see the very vines that he trained with his own hands. Okay. Now, this is very important if you actually think through. Um, if you were to train some vines, whatever it might be, and we've all worked in gardens at various times, most of us, and you walk away from that for 6,000 years, and you come back, would you recognize the way you've trained them to, to, to grow? Or would they have grown so much in 6,000 years you wouldn't recognize them? You wouldn't recognize them. But how about in six days? With, a day, with the Lord, a day is like 1,000 years. And their suggestion with these comments in the Bible, Peter, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, that time moves differently on earth than it moves in heaven. 
And that if Adam's going to recognize those vines, that uh, things aren't growing as rapidly there as they are here. Time's moving differently. And so it really may be, from the heavenly perspective, this has been about six days that's gone by. For the 6,000 years that's gone by here. It makes you feel better when you think about it that way, that he hadn't left us here for that long. You know? and, then, and thus God is, exactly what Peter says, God is not slow in keeping his promises. The bottom paragraph in Monday's lesson. Oh, wait, no, we didn't do the memory text yet in Monday's lesson. Memory text. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. What do you think that means? Redemption through his blood. How have you traditionally heard that? Have you always heard that? when you? His death. So the blood is the death, by his death. And, and how is it that we have redemption through his, his blood? Blood means life. It represents the life. How does that how does that work to give us redemption? He lived the perfect life, and uh, yeah, he did. So so he he merits going to heaven because he was perfect. How does that help us? By accepting him, he he gives us that his his life and character. Okay, by accepting it, he gives it to us. Yes. The information that that perfect life brings to our mind is what rescues and heals our minds, which brings life to us. Okay. I was just going to say the blood represents I mean, him, his selfless sacrifice to his whole life of proving to us God's true character. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. What was he talking about? Healing through the truth about God. She says healing through the truth about God. So the truth about God is revealed in Christ. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Uh, if we partake of the truth, it does what? What does the truth do in our minds? It sets us free. Okay, it sets us free and gets rid of the lies about God. And when the lies about God have gotten rid of, what, what do we naturally then do? Do we continue to be afraid of God or do we now trust God? Okay, so we trust God. Now that we trust God, what happens next? His character created in us. Okay, his character is recreated in us through a method, a principle. It says in, in he, uh, Romans 5, 5, that he pours his love into our hearts. Does he pour love into hearts that are closed to him? No. No, no so the truth wins us to trust, which we open the heart, and he pours his love into our hearts, and it says that God is love. So who is he pouring into our hearts? No. Himself. We become partakers of the... Divine. Divine nature. The law in Hebrews chapter 8 is written where? In the heart and mind. Jesus said, it's good for you that I go because uh, when I go, I'm going to send the comforter. Now, he's not going to speak on his own. He's going to take what is mine and he's going to make it known to you. Now, what is it that, the, that Christ has that we need besides the knowledge of God? We obviously need the knowledge of God. So we've been one to trust. We've seen that truth. The Holy Spirit's enlightened our mind. We, wonder, we open the heart. What else do we need now? The power to live a righteous life. The power to live a righteous life. Hey, would you say? A perfect character. Interestingly enough, it says in Hebrews chapter 5, 8, it says that um, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Once he was made perfect. When was he not perfect? She says, when was he not perfect? Mature, complete. Okay. See, perfect in Bible, perfect can have a couple meanings. One can mean flawless, without mistake, without defect, which he always was. But one can, uh, the other aspect of it, and I think it's the Hebrews text is, once he's mature or complete, once he's fulfilled what he had to fulfill completely, 
Now, you see, if, it was, if a blood payment to God of an innocent life of his perfect divine son was all that was needed, when Christ was an infant, did Herod send soldiers to try and kill him and shed his blood? Was he the divine son of God, perfect and sinless as a baby? Yeah. See, the blood could have been shed. Payment could have been made. But that was not sufficient. He had more to do. And thus God intervened would not allow that to happen. He had a mission. He had a ministry. One, revealing the truth. Two, overcoming in our very stead. And thus it says in Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in every way just like we are yet without sin. And um, James chapter 1, verse 11 through 13, that we are tempted by our own evil desires or feelings or emotions. Christ took upon himself that very situation that tempts him to act in self-interest. And you look in Gethsemane, what do you see? Did Christ experience powerful emotions? Not just outside himself, not, like, not just a devil tempting him externally, but his own feelings. Were, were, they, were they tempting him to do what? To save, himself. to save himself. Do you understand that is the root? The two antagonistic principles, loving others, greater love is no man that he give his life for his friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us and we ought to give our life for each other. Uh, he was being tempted to act to save self versus act in love and give self. And notice that every temptation he chose to give self in love, overcoming where we couldn't overcome. And even further, think about your own life experience. Think about the times when something hit you wrong. Something went across your own selfish nature and you flared up. You, you cursed. You hollered. You acted out. You cut somebody down. You retaliated. Think about how intense those... Fa- and you couldn't seem to resist them. We've all done that, haven't we? And you understand in all of our difficulties where we've slipped up, the Holy Spirit was still there working with us. The angels of God were still there wooing us. We still had God's agencies trying to turn us to the right path in the middle of our mistake, didn't we? But Christ tread the winepress alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, abandoned me? You see, he was let go to do this without that extra help that we get. And he still won the victory in our stead. It's profound. It's amazing. And thus that victory becomes ours as the Holy Spirit takes what is Christ, his victory, and makes it known to us. He actually rewrites it into our hearts that we come to love people more than ourselves. And the only power in the universe that can free our hearts from fear and selfishness is the power of love. And I've told this analogy before, but I see some new faces, so I'll say it again. Imagine that you were walking along the street of Chattanooga, and you go to step out and cross the street, and you see a truck coming, and it's about to hit you. What emotion do you experience? Now you're walking along with your three-year-old firstborn son. And you look up and your son gets away and starts toddling out in the street. And and you see that same truck bearing down on your son. There's just enough time for you to run out and shove him out of the way. But if you do, you're going to get hit. What do you do? You shove him out of the way. And as you see him roll to safety in the grass, and that truck is about to hit you, what are you feeling now? Relief. Relief. Joy. My son is safe. In both situations, you're getting hit by a truck. One, you only have fear. One, the fear has been purged by love. The only power that can free us in this universe from this inherent fear and need to act to protect self is the power of love, love for God and love for others. And this is what God offers us, to restore that love in our hearts so that we can love others more than ourselves. That's the power that we need. Bottom paragraph in Monday's lesson starts out uh, in the Bible. Somebody read that for us. Bible, grace is an aspect of God's love, and it is extended in a particular way to sinners. It seems to designate a dynamic, consistent, and permanent aspect of God's nature, 
one that constantly seeks to restore sinful creatures to harmony with him. The biblical concept of grace reaffirms the fact that the atoning work of Christ reaches as a gift, a work of salvation that we did not deserve. God's grace implies that our sin is inexcusable, unjustifiable, and deserving eternal death. Yet, instead of that death, we were given the hope and the promise of life, even eternal life. And finally, this wonderful aspect of God's nature was revealed to the universe in an unparalleled way in the person and the work of Christ. It is only and exclusively in Him that we find and enjoy the benefits of the riches of His grace. Any thoughts about that? Any questions come to your mind? Was grace extended to Satan and his angels? Yes. Did I hear some no's? Because it says grace is extended in a particular way to sinners. It's the atoning work of grace is the atoning work of Christ as a gift for salvation. Is that offered to, to Satan and his angels? Hmm. It was in the beginning. Does God ever become ungracious? No. Does God ever stop being gracious to anyone? Is God ungracious to Satan? No. So could Satan or any of the angels at any time repeat and come back and God would accept them fully back? He asked, could Satan and his, any of his angels at any time repent and come back? God doesn't bar the way for that to happen. It's just that the damage they've done to themselves keeps it. Oh, did you hear that? You see, it's so critical to hear that. God does not bar the way for that to happen. God does not prevent it. God does not put up obstacles. God does not say, no, you had your chance. Ali, Ali, in free. It's over. Uh, no, he, God, God just puts no barriers up. But the damage that sin causes in the mind and character has become so deep, so ingrained, so pervasive, that they are beyond responding to God's grace. That no amount of truth, no amount of love, no amount of evidence has any impact anymore upon them. Hardness of heart. heart. The heart has become so hardened it won't respond exactly right. And this is ultimately why people die in the end. I, I told this story as well. Uh, a patient that I had uh, was in an accident and was bleeding and internally and needed a blood transfusion, but, but she was a Jehovah's Witness and wouldn't accept blood transfusions. And she was pled with Pled with by the medical students, pled with by the nurses, pled with by the doctors. The hospital administration came down, chaplains came down. I mean, she was pled with, pled with, pled with until she lost consciousness. And once she lost consciousness, nobody pled with her anymore. Why did we stop pleading? Because we didn't care? Because we didn't want to save her? Because she couldn't respond. Okay? God's pleadings only stop when we get to a position that we're beyond responding to the pleadings. Sin against the Holy Ghost. That would be the sinning against the Holy Spirit. The unpardonable sin is the sin that we persist in such that we are beyond responding anymore. We damage the very faculties. The conscience becomes so seared. It is imperceptive to the movements of the Spirit of God anymore. It doesn't recognize truth anymore. has no sense of love or compassion or conviction or empathy anymore. The heart has become permanently hard. God uh, said that, uh, I think, in the Bible. Ephraim, Ephraim, how can I let you go? How can I give you up? but you are bent on leaving me. Another place, you are tied to your idols and bent on leaving me. What can I do? What can I do? It says in that paragraph we just read that sin is in, God's grace says that sin is, is inexcusable. Whose sin is inexcusable? 
Ours as individuals? Yes, as but do the R, our, mean our in Adam and Eve, the human race, as it was in Adam and Eve is inexcusable, or you and me as individuals born on this planet, our sin is inexcusable? What do you think it means? Sin as such. I think at the beginning of sin, when, when, Satan, mm-hmm. when Satan said that was... If an HIV-infected man and an HIV-infected woman get together and have a child, and their child is born HIV-infected, what did the child do wrong? Nothing. Does the child have a choice? Will the child get sick? Yes. Is it the child's fault? No. Is the child have an excuse? But Satan did, because he lived in... I'm talking about you and me right now. Yeah. Okay? Is it your fault that you were born a sinner? No. Did you do anything wrong to be born a sinner? No. No. You see, we didn't have a choice. Be very clear on this. This is a misconception that we should feel guilty for the fact we struggle with sin. No, we shouldn't. We should not feel guilty. We're sinners. We had no choice in this. However, let's say the HIV-infected child grows up and there is a free remedy that will cure him and he refuses the remedy. Will he be responsible for that? That's our position. We don't have a choice in the fact we were born sinners. We do have a choice on whether we take the remedy and get well or not. And the remedy is provided for free and it will heal, it will cure, it will free us from living under the domination of the sinful nature we were born with. We don't have to live in that life anymore. So we don't have to feel guilty we found ourselves in that life. But we do need to take ownership and responsibility for refuse the remedy that would free us from that life. Do you see the difference? Did I confuse anybody? I was just going to say, this whole sentence seems like it, the concept is like that we, it's something to be shunned, like God shuns and punishes the sinners because of, you know, saying like they're strong, inexcusable and undesirable and it deserves eternal death. It's, rather than presenting it as like that's just a natural consequence, it's presenting it as God. And, and, ha- and when you read it that way, when you hear it that way, what does that do to your desire to open your heart to God? <laughs> does it bring you closer to Him or does it push you away from Him? You see, Christianity has been infected. Christianity, at, at large, at, as a whole. Um, you understand pro- just the history of our church. Protestantism came from? Catholicism. And Catholicism came from? Paganism. Paganism. See, the Catholic Church wants people to believe it came from Apostle Peter. It did not. The apostolic church was in the church in the wilderness, the Huguenots, the, the Waldenses. This was the apostolic church. Um, the, the paganism of Rome converted to Christian guise when Constantine converted to Christianity. And the bishop of Rome became the, the, the head of the, of the now new Christian state church. And, that, and that's why we have all the, 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 the stuff we have in the Catholic church, because it was just paganism converted over. And the core of all paganism is... An angry, wrathful God that has to be appeased with a payment from somebody that's something the worshiper has to do to God to convert, convert the God over to the, to the worshiper's side. Well, Protestantism, Protestantism protested many of the abuses of Catholicism. Um, priesthood of believers, we don't have to have an earthly priest, and you know the whole history of all the, the doctrinal things that we have freed ourselves from coming out of the, the Dark Ages. However, the core central defect has never been fully thrown off by any organized church, including our own. And that core central defect is God requires appeasement. 
God must have a penalty paid in order for him to be just. That his son paid his blood penalty to the Father to assuage the Father's wrath. This is the heart of paganism, and it still infects Christianity today. And we must free our church and our minds from that and recognize what the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5, God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. Romans chapter 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare a son but gave him up, how will he not also with him give us all things? It is God who justifies. Who is it that accuses? Christ Jesus is at the Father's hand and is also interceding for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. You'll find through the scriptures, or John 16.26, Jesus said, I will not pray the Father for you, because the Father himself loves you. You will find the scripture does not teach that the Father needed to be appeased by his Son's blood, but that the Father was in the Son working to heal, restore, and regenerate, and bring mankind back to him. This other idea is the heart of paganism, and God is waiting for a people to free our hearts and minds from it so that we can see God as revealed in Jesus and ultimately trust him and be healed and be that people ready to meet him when he comes. And I saw a hand somewhere. Stanley. Can you uh, put Romans 5, 9 in clearer context for me, which will help me if I do? It says, uh, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we and this in this translation NIV 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 is a very forensic translation um, the word justified in the Greek anybody know to bring into alignment okay exactly the Greek is dikaio dikasune it's the same word translated um, righteous or put right so we are put right set right. Now, and you can understand this word if you look at your um, word processor and you justify your margin. When you justify your margin, what are you doing? Right. Are you paying a legal penalty for, for it being out of line? No, you're simply putting it in line. You're putting it in harmony. You're, you're squaring it up. Okay, so the question is, in justification, what is it that's out of line, out of harmony, out of sync that needs to be put back in the line, back in harmony, back in sync? Is it God or is it the heart and mind of mankind? Mankind. Okay, notice. So whatever justification is, it's not fixing God or adjusting God. It's realigning mankind. It's realigning our hearts, realigning our minds. So we are justified. We are set right. Now, what is it that was wrong that needed to be set right? Was it not our concepts and beliefs about God? And our motivation of operation, both. We thought God to be like Satan, who said he was. Darkness covered the people. Gross darkness the people, Isaiah. Jesus is the light of the world that lights all men. The light about what? For though we live in the world, we don't wage wars. The world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. This is life eternal that they might know you, the only true God. You're going to find over and over through Scripture the key issue is the knowledge of God. So the death of Christ, the life of Christ, sets us right about God so that we open the heart to trust him, and thus we don't experience God's wrath. Now, Paul's already told us in Romans 1 what God's wrath is. Romans 1, verse 18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, that, that Greek, is being revealed, is active present tense. It's not the wrath of God one day at the judgment, at the end of time, will be revealed. No, Paul is talking in his day currently was happening. God's wrath was being revealed. Then he goes through the next ten verses and tells you six times why the wrath of God comes. He says, because of truth about God, and what's the core issue? The knowledge. The knowledge of? 
God, okay? So the truth about God they didn't value. They suppressed the truth about God. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They preferred images made with their own hands to the truth about God. Therefore, because they would not accept the truth about God, which sets the mind free, God did something. His wrath, verse 24, verse 26, verse 28, therefore, God gave them up. God let them go. God handed them over. God stopped interceding on their behalf. God stopped reaching out. He set them free. And in verse chapter 4 of Romans, verse 25, Paul uses the exact same Greek. Now, the English translators translate it slightly differently, so it's, it's hard to see. But the Greek is exact, the exact Greek of 24, 26, and 28, where he says, therefore, God gave them up to their free choice in sacrificing Christ at the cross. Paul uses the exact same Greek for our salvation. He says, therefore, God gave him up for our salvation. And what did Christ experience on the cross? God's wrath. And what did God do to his son on the cross? Gave him up. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? You don't see God raining fire down from heaven, acting out, abusing, torturing, killing. You see God setting Christ free to reap the consequences of Christ's choices. And what did Christ choose for his life? To redeem us, to heal us. He chose the path of destroying Satan and Satan's power. Notice it says in Hebrews 2.14 that Christ took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. So Christ's death, number one, was the purpose of destroying Satan, not for appeasing his father. Two, in Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10, it says, This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. So the purpose of Christ's death, reveal truth about God, destroy him who holds the power of death, and ultimately to destroy death itself. Destroy death itself. How did Christ destroy death at the cross? By the way, does that answer your question, Stanley? Um, yes, for now. Okay, good. And if you, I'm sure you'll cogitate on that and come back with some more, and we need those questions. Those are good questions. Because you can understand how how the church would you know, maintain that idea because if you just read that text... And that's the problem of taking the, uh, the Bible piece here and a piece there rather than taking it as a whole. It's also the problem of taking one English translation um, because the Bible is not written in English. And much of the English language has a Latin base to it. And the Latin base is a very forensic language, our, our legal language. Most of the language we use in the courts of law are from the Latin. And so we hear, when we hear these words, justification and so, so forth, expiation, we hear legal terms uh, associated with we're never in the actual Greek itself. Atonement's another one. Atonement was never written in Greek. It means reconciliation, oneness, unity. Okay, but we hear a legal process there because of the way the English language is. So multiple versions is very helpful in taking the Bible as a whole to bring all the pieces together to the grand central theme is very helpful to avoid this as well. So, the, so you had another question? No, I was just going to say, so, so is, it, is it logical then to, to suggest that Maybe even in how the Bible is presented is a way in which we can be deceived and not see the truth. He says, is it possible the Bible can be presented in a way to deceive people and not see the truth? Of course, absolutely. It happens all the time. When, when Satan met Christ in the wilderness, what did he do? He quoted scriptures in a way to attempt to deceive. 
Okay, so sure, the scriptures can be used to deceive if they're not used correctly. Absolutely. Sincere people who don't have the expertise and the understanding of Greek and so forth and so on take the Bible for the way it is. Will they be held accountable if their belief is different than a truer or a clearer understanding? You hear, you hear the implication right there. Held accountable by who? Who's going to hold us accountable? If you are dying of pneumonia and one person comes with an antibiotic which will cure you and somebody else comes with snake oil, you know the old snake oil salesman of the 19th century, with something that doesn't have a cure in it at all but it's going to make money off of you and you are deceived into buying the snake oil sincerely and you think it's going to help you and you take it, who's going to hold you accountable? The question is, is, is built upon the idea that our problem is in, is in God's hands in a legal forensic manner, that he is passing judicial sentence upon us, and that determines our destiny. That is not the case. Our destiny is not determined by a judicial sentence passed by God. Our destiny is determined God has given us the choice by what Christ has done to determine our own destiny. We either accept him and receive the gift of immortal life and eternal life, or we reject him and we die from the wages of sin, which is death. Our condition is self-terminating unless we accept healing through Christ. God doesn't have to inflict it upon us. And so the question would then be, if it's understood in such a way that obstructs the mind from trusting God and thus opening the heart to receive the Holy Spirit, what's going to happen? If it's understood in such a way that it brings trust and opens the heart and we experience the Holy Spirit indwelling and renewing, then what's going to happen? So when Christ comes again, do you expect there'll be anybody on this earth who knows 100% correctly every detail of the scripture when he first arrives here? No. None of us. It's not about knowing all the details right. What is it about knowing? God. God. This is life eternal. They might know you, the only true God. It's about knowing his character, his principles, his methods, his love, and trusting him that we experience that type of character reproduced within us. So we may have disagreements about which horns or, or which on the beast and uh, those types of things, and even which day of the week we go to church on. We have disagreements about that. But for those who are saved, they will come to know God as revealed in Jesus Christ, who is a God of love, and will trust him, and will love others more than themselves. And outside our church, I have books in my library. One, George MacDonald, I think you have, that goes back to 100 years ago, lived the time of Ellen White, and had this picture of God. So it's not, you know, we talk about our church, but there are a lot of those out in other churches that have the concept of God that you've been talking about. Briefly, how can you say that Christ destroyed death? She, she asked, how did Christ destroy death? Thanks for bringing that question back up. What is the basis of life in this universe? What is the principle upon which God designed life to operate on in this universe? Love. 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 You remember we've talked about this law in here. This law is an other-centered, outward-moving... It's not just an emotion. It's not just a feeling. It is actually a principle that life is designed to operate on. That love is not self-seeking, it says in 1 Corinthians. And you've seen this. I don't have time to go through all the examples again uh, with our short time, but I'll just give the one example. Every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide, and the plants give back oxygen to you. A never-ending circle of giving. If you decide to separate from that circle and be a taker, my carbon dioxide is mine, you can't have it. 
The only way to do that is to stop breathing and to die. All life is designed to work on the circle of love, the never-ending circle of beneficence, giving. Satan's kingdom or principle is the principle of selfishness, the principle of taking. Taking only leads to self-termination and death. Okay? Christ came. When Adam and Eve sinned, lies believed broke that circle of love and trust. If you're married and you believe a lie that your spouse is having an affair, even though your spouse is not having an affair, if you believe they are, will something inside you change? Yes. 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 Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. I don't trust you anymore. I'm afraid you're going to hurt me. And I can't trust you to watch out for me. I've got to watch out for myself. And so it was the lie Satan told about God that broke the circle of love and trust, resulting in fear and selfishness in the heart. And that selfishness that we have in our heart that we're born with is a terminal condition. Christ came, took that condition upon himself, and at the cross, destroyed it. How did he destroy it? Because he was tempted to act to save self. All around him, he saw in Gethsemane, on the cross, others he saved himself. He can't say, come down off the cross and save yourself and we'll believe in you. The thief next to him, save yourself, why don't you? Temptations everywhere to save self. If Christ, anywhere along death's approach, anywhere along death's approach, if he would have acted to, sit, to, to stop death's approach, what would he have done? Saved himself. Selfishness would have won. But Christ gave himself. No one can take my life. It wasn't like the helpless thieves that could do nothing. No one can take my life. I will give it freely. And in giving his life freely, he destroyed in his human experience the very elements of Satan's kingdom that bring death, selfishness. And thus he was free to rise again on the third day because he had conquered the very principles, elements of Satan's government. The law of sin and death had been conquered and the law of love had been perfectly restored in in the human being, God-man, Jesus Christ. And thus it says, Psalms 17.9, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, restoring, healing, regenerating, recreating. The law of love is the law of life. And it was perfectly restored in Christ. And thus he had every right to rise again, which is different than the legal payment model that says that Christ died the second death. If he'd actually done that, he had no right to rise again. Because if he rose again, the moment he rises again, eternal death has not been paid. He didn't die eternally. It's only through this understanding that we read out of the Bible that he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life that he has the right to rise again. And thus, those of us who trust in him receive his victorious life as a free gift. And it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And we actually have a regenerating power. And I'm going to tell you, just in closing, I'll read to you a quote from one of the founders of our church where this is described... This is Desire of Ages 762. It says, The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. Why does the law require it? Because that's the basis of life. That is absolutely the basis of life. If we, saw, if we said the, law of, the laws of health require respiration, that you breathe, why does the laws of health require that? Because human life is built on aerobic respiration. That's a law. It's not an arbitrary thing. The law of God requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character, and this man is not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ coming to earth as a man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed. Notice through what? Through the forbearance of God, not through a penalty paid, through God's forbearance. More than this, Christ imbues man with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believers in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him 
who believes in Jesus. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you did not leave us sick and dying, believing and twisting in the wind of the lies of Satan, that you came here to first destroy the lies of Satan and win us to know you, back to trust. And when we see you as revealed in Jesus, we are so blown away by your awesome grace, patience, and love. But more than that, Christ came and took upon himself our sick condition and overcame where we could not overcome. He lived that perfect life, giving himself fully in the face of overwhelming temptations, loving perfectly, rising on the third day, holding the keys of Hades in the grave. And we now ask that the Holy Spirit be poured out, taking what Christ has achieved with the Holy Spirit, writing his law, his character on our hearts and minds, that we can be freed also of fear in our hearts and selfishness in our hearts, that we can love you, love others, and be witness for you at this time of the end, that we can see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.